Please fasten your seatbelts. The skies are rough and our two pilots have no idea where they're going. So kick back, relax, and enjoy your flight on no blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. We've all been on planes where the kid is just crying the whole time. And everybody around us, I think, could see that we were being active and not just you know, saying screw it, it's not our, not nothing we can do, you know? So I, I think that goes a long way. I think showing that you are aware of what's happening goes a long way. Every time we'd stop at pull off to go to a location and we'd shoot, they, our drivers would set up a mat, they'd pour Arabic coffee and tea. The tea is essentially just pure sugar. So it's just like, they're just on sugar highs all day, smoking shisha and chain smoking cigarettes. And that's how they sub the alcohol and weed. <laughs> What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of No Blackout Dates. I'm Evan. I'm Tim. We got a special episode for you guys today. We got no guests, just us, just me and Tim. We're doing a little mid-year check-in. Tim just got back from a trip to Mexico, his first trip traveling with his daughter, Olivia. Uh, I did some traveling recently, so we're going to check in on how each other's travels have been going, ask each other some questions. We might interview each other, if you will. So we're going to start by addressing something that has recently come up in Tim's life after his trip. He's got COVID, finally has COVID. How does it feel? I had it in January, wasn't fun. Now you've got it. Are you glad that you finally got COVID? Now you know what all the hype is about. How are you feeling? I don't feel great. I mean, I don't feel terrible. I think the, you know, I think it's overdue. Honestly, I can't believe it's been this long pretty much everybody I know has had it already um I will say that it's interesting that I tested today uh positive when I took a test the day before we flew home which was just earlier this week and it was negative um you know as you have to test before you re-enter the United States and it makes me wonder whether or not this happened in Mexico or if it happened after because we've been back in the states for uh like three or four days now I haven't done a ton since then, but I, you know, been to a restaurant or two, went to the gym once, and uh, yesterday afternoon I just started feeling like I had a cold. I didn't sleep well last night and woke up this morning and took a test. Uh, now I'll be isolating in my office for the next five days. So I'm glad. I will. So I will say that I'm glad. You've just been spreading it for the last few days. Maybe I didn't feel sick until yesterday i i don't i i can't speak to exactly when it happened my suspicion is that it happened in denver after we returned but uh i will say that i'm i'm glad if it had to happen i'm glad it happened after we're back in the country and we're not you know isolating in a hotel room in puerto vallarta my suspicion is that you got it in mexico that you got a false negative and that you've just been spreading it on the plane, in the airport, in Denver, just every at the gym, everywhere you've been going. Rough estimate, how many people do you think you've given COVID? None, because my wife tested negative this morning, and we both tested negative in Mexico. So So she doesn't have it. She's good. But I, I guess we'll see because I you know, I sent a, a message this morning to everybody that I've been in touch with the last few days to let them know. So hopefully everybody tests negative. Yeah, it, it's and this is raises a point that we've discussed before, which is if you test positive while you're traveling and you're not allowed to come home, what happens? And you're, I don't know what the rule is in Mexico, but you'd be quarantined for how long? 
10 days, two weeks? I believe it's five days. At your own expense. At your own expense, unless you have travel insurance that you've purchased in advance that can cover that. Okay. So I like I really think, I mean, I don't what do I know? I'm not a doctor, but I feel like you probably got it in Mexico and like just slid right under the radar with that negative test, or you were maybe one day, you tested like one day too soon for it to be detectable. Because I know people that have had it for a while. I even felt sick for a while, but didn't get a positive test until like day five or six of their sickness. So, yeah, you really lucked out, I think. But yeah, how would that have gone if you had to stay in Mexico? Would would Alicia have gone home with Olivia and left you there? Like, what? That you, you gotta it raises some interesting questions. Yeah, I'm not sure. Probably, if she tested negative, I would imagine because you know she has to get back to work. Uh, if we both would have tested positive, I guess we would have both been there. But uh, yeah, if she would have tested negative, she would have probably been on the flight. The the thing about you know having caught it in Mexico, if that's what happened, is it's possible. But everyone on the plane tested negative within 24 hours of the flight, right? So it's obviously possible that it, I caught it after that or got it from somebody on the plane. Although on the plane in Mexico, you have to wear a mask still and in the airport. Um, though... On the, on the return flight from Mexico, the pilot said, because we are going over the U.S. border, you could take your mask off. So a few people did that, but most left them on. Right. Okay. Well, Tim has COVID. Thoughts and prayers. If he's not his usual exuberant self today, that's why. So he's got to pass. But we'll segue into the trip itself. You were gone for how long? You were in Puerto Vallarta in Mexico for how long? Six days. Six days. Okay, and it was your first trip with Olivia, who is six months old? Five months old? She's seven, a little over seven months old. Her first time on a plane and her first time abroad. We've done a few, you know, short road trips, but this was the biggest trip that we've done with her. Okay, and now what did you learn about traveling with an infant that you didn't anticipate, didn't prepare for? Well, I learned I'm very lucky to have, uh, to have Alicia because she is so thorough with her planning. You know, we had everything down to the $20 Target foldable stroller that you can check at the gate and wheel through the airport. And we ended up using that stroller throughout the entire trip, uh, and it was perfect. Um, that was probably the best purchase we made in advance of this trip, was a $20 foldable Target stroller, um, as opposed to trying to lug a car seat or something abroad. Okay, and what else? Does she, the first international experience... Did she fully immerse herself in the culture? Is her first word going to be in Spanish? What's the value? We talked previously about the value of bringing a young child abroad, whether they're really going to be able to appreciate or enjoy the experience, that they're going to get anything out of it, or is it just kind of a hassle? What do you think now after having done it? I'm tempted to say it was an enriching experience. I mean, she definitely, I mean, she saw the ocean for the first time and you know, not like she was in it, but she could see it and observe it and hear it. She was in a big pool, like splashing, you know, while we hold her, walking her around in like the shallow pool area. Uh, so she had some experiences that she won't remember, but uh, that were learning experiences for her nonetheless. For us, I mean, the biggest lesson, I think, is that traveling with kids, A, takes a whole new level of preparation and B, costs quite a bit more because... You know, we wanted to make it easy, so we booked a direct flight, which was more than, you know, buying a flight that had a layover. We stayed at a resort that we probably otherwise wouldn't have done, as opposed to just getting an Airbnb or something. Um, and we spent, 
more time eating food at the resort as opposed to going out to local restaurants and street food than we normally do. So it's a lot more expensive just because you have to make all of these accommodations for having a young infant. But we did take her on the, on the bus on public transit into the city one day and walked around and uh, went to a cafe. So that was cool. She did get, you know, that experience. More direct flights, um, eating in a resort. What about the actual excursions you did? Did you change how you spent your days, what your itineraries look like because of Olivia, or could you pretty much do everything you wanted to do? Was there anything you wanted to do but didn't because she was with you? The only thing that we didn't do that we would have done otherwise is go on a hike and eat more street food um, as opposed to you know eating at the resort or ordering room service. Um, we weren't at an all-inclusive uh, perhaps that would have been a better idea, but the all-inclusives are even more expensive than what we paid for. So I, I think that, you know, we planned a lot and kind of knew we were going to be spending a fair amount of time lounging and sitting at the pool and taking it easy. And uh, that's how it ended up being. This was not a, a, a trip where we were out doing stuff from morning until evening every day. And how did you like that? Because that's not your the way you would normally structure a trip. You know, you like to be out being active so this is like a we talk about this a lot how we're not the kind of people that want to just go to a resort that's all inclusive and sit by the pool all day so now you're now you're that guy i'm that guy now yeah at least this time but i you know i think the way we're viewing this was that it was a test you know and she did great on the plane uh we learned a lot we learned about you know timing the boarding timing her nap around boarding and takeoff so that she can be asleep that makes it a lot easier we did a great job of that uh, you know, she she cried a little on the plane, but not extensively. She was really good. And overall, she seemed happy while we were there. So I think the next step then is to, you know, do the Airbnb trip or, or do a different kind of trip where mm-hmm. we're not cushioning ourselves so much. Yeah, so easing back into kind of like your normal mode of travel. Right. On planes, that's the one thing that I'm always self-conscious about on planes. If I, well, I should, I'm not always self-conscious because I don't have a kid. But if I were to have a kid, I'd be so worried about bringing the kid on a plane because as someone who doesn't have one, if there's a baby crying on a plane, I'm always looking over like, oh, these parents are, must be terrible parents. Like, why can't they keep their kid from crying on a plane? Because obviously they have complete control over that. So then as the parent, are you, do you have more self-consciousness now? I'm sure you've felt that way as well you know it's yeah. not their you know it's not the parents fault but you're still annoyed are you whenever she makes noise or cries or whatever it was she did are you just like uh, no you're like ruining my my plane cred right now a little bit i mean fortunately we didn't have a terrible experience so i can't really speak to what's that li- that's like right um because we've all been on planes where the kid is just crying the whole time and maybe that will happen to us in the future it probably will but this time you know when when we did have some squawks you know we were able to kind of calm her down quick and I, everybody around us i think could see that we were being active and not just you know saying screw it it's not our not nothing we can do you know so i, I think that goes a long way i think showing that you are aware yeah. of what's happening goes a long way absolutely yeah show like the parent that just sits there and she's like okay well that's okay this is fine this is just what my kid does and you all have to deal with it that's way way worse than a parent that's actively trying to calm down their kids tough to be mad at that parent um so what else do you think that a traveler should know traveling for the first time with kids what advice would you give someone 
now that you're a seasoned traveler with a child. In addition to timing the naps uh, around boarding and takeoff, uh, that was a huge win. Uh, the stroller was a huge win. Keep plenty of toys on hand in your carry-on bag to kind of rotate through when the baby is awake on the plane to kind of keep her occupied and busy and quiet. Another thing we did that we, I don't know if we planned on doing it, but we did is we were we were feeding her cold bottles now and then on the trip because we didn't have a way to heat up uh, filtered water in our hotel room. And it went okay, but we could have tested that in advance so that she was more used to having a cold bottle. I mean, she usually breastfeeds, but now and then we have to do a bottle, and it was not the temperature that she's used to. Babies can't have cold water? Well, they can, but the thing is is that you don't want to heat the water up in a non-clean receptacle, right? And so we didn't have like a stove in our hotel room. So we didn't really have a way to heat it up other than the coffee maker, and the coffee maker is full of coffee grounds. So, but why, why do you have to heat up the water? Is this like a common baby thing that I just don't know? You can, but generally, you know, she, she the best way to feed a bottle is to make it as close to the temperature of breast milk as you can, which is like lukewarm, warm, you know? So she's used to that feeling and that, that texture. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. That I did not know. Okay. And so packing, you mentioned packing. How did it? change your packing did you you normally wouldn't check a bag but you i'm guessing had to check a bag uh we checked one bag it was a pretty large bag it was like a big duffel uh stuffed full of toys and diapers and uh we were you know we put some of our clothes in there which made it a little easier but yeah we did have to check a bag and how did that convert you into being a checked bag guy or are you still uh firmly in the carry-on camp uh, I'm an, I'm the, I'm a check by guy when I'm trying traveling with a baby. <laughs> right. <laughs> definitely, okay. definitely made money. That's fair. I don't, I don't know that we could have like carried so much on the plane, you know, unless we were like going somewhere for a long time where we could be buying toys and diapers when we get there, then you could maybe get away. Right. But. Was Puerto Vallarta, I mean, it's a touristy spot. Was, were they like, if you needed anything, for baby while you were there would that have been easily accessible because i know for adults pretty much anywhere you go you can find stuff that you might need toothbrush chargers like you know you can find amenities that travelers need but for babies i don't know if that's the case well that was part of the reason of staying at a resort again is that you know yes they could we requested a crib in the room a bassinet more specifically or a pack and play i guess it was which is like a all these terms that you're probably not familiar with yet but basically a big oh i used to work at a hotel we used to supply pack and place did i have a clue okay, what it yeah. was nope but it came in this big box and they did I, we'd deliver it and they'd assemble it still have no idea what it is but pack and play yeah we had one of those and that was you know with the resort like we felt a little more comfortable if she got sick or something that we could have that treated easily instead of walking around a city center trying to find a, a clinic that will take yeah the baby no for sure I, that's how I feel, honestly, if I'm staying in like a really foreign country, like I'd almost rather stay in a, in a resort or someplace that's a little more upscale so that I feel like I'm more taken care of in this unfamiliar, maybe like scarier environment. Whereas if you're traveling just in Europe or in the U S like I, I would never consider like an all inclusive resort, but so it's almost like traveling with a child is like having something that's it's like you're more fragile. Your whole operation is more fragile. So you want a place that's equipped to, to handle that fragility. There are a lot more things that could go wrong, for sure. Yes. 
We're going to take a short break from the interview for a word from our partners at Matador Network. Are you a travel writer, filmmaker, or an influencer who loves to travel the world for free? Check out creators.matadornetwork.com and explore one of our many press trips. Sign up for free. That's creators.matadornetwork.com. Happy travels. And now back to the interview. Speaking of uh, speaking of resorts, Evan, you were just in Saudi Arabia and you were at a resort there in the middle of the desert. Uh, walk us through that because I saw your Instagram stories. Um, but beyond that, the camels and the rocks and stuff, I, I, I'm having a hard time picturing exactly how that was. It's a tough trip to describe to people. So basically where I went was an area of the Arabian desert called Neom. That's N-E-O-M. And it's in the northwest, kind of on the border of Jordan and Egypt. And it's a pretty much, there's nothing there in terms of development. There's no tourism infrastructure. There's no really cities. There's a bunch of small little villages and towns, but that's it. And what the government is doing is they're building this massive you know, billions of dollars tourism project there. They're building a giant city called The Line because it's going to be in the shape of a thin line um, to be completed in like 2035. It's going to be futuristic, totally sustainable. Um, they're building a ton of new roads. There's no roads right now, really. There's kind of one highway that goes nowhere. Um, and it's going to be this big tourism center, almost like their version of Dubai. And it's right on the water. So it's right on the Red Sea. So they've got the water, they've got the desert. Uh, they've got cool canyons, uh, just like unbelievable canyons that have no, like like mini Grand Canyons that have no tourists there. Um, beautiful coral reefs, pristine, untouched beaches. And basically why I was there was the Saudi Arabian government, part of their bid to bring awareness to this area for tourism and part of their uh, building it up is making a video, a tourism movie, essentially, about why people should visit this area, all the things they can do, all the outdoor activities mainly. So Matador sent a film crew, and I came along as the, the writer, kind of the editorial components of that to produce a few articles to go along with the movie. The movie isn't out yet. We'll link it when it is. But we stayed in a resort called the Royal Tulip. It's the only hotel in the area, recently finished. So there's, imagine this vast desert expanse there's really nothing there except a lot of natural beauty. Then there's one resort right on the Red Sea. And that's where all the marketing people, all the PR people, all the, a lot of the construction people, there's no tourists, but that, that this resort is completely finished and it's beautiful, but that's where all of these people are staying. And there's no actual guests, no tourists, just people working on developing the area. So it's almost an eerie, vibe when you're there because you're there during the day and there's nobody there because they're all out working on the site so if you are there during the day which we weren't there too much during the day we were out filming but imagine a beautiful hotel there was a dj uh, by the infinity pool bumping beats all day to nobody to an audience of zero it was a very eerie environment but beautiful they had a great dinner set up beautiful dinner buffet right on the water every night unbelievable food as far as the resort goes incredible experience and i was there for two weeks going all around neom and uh yeah 
So what was the vibe of the people there? Are people excited about this project or are they all just kind of workers that are going through the motions and just want to go home? Everyone is very excited and people that we were talking to, especially because we were in tourism, are going to are going to be very excited because it's their job. But you get the sense from talking to local Saudis that they're just really happy to share this corner of the world that they've grown up in and they've always appreciated with an international community. You know, this isn't a place that has seen tourism before. And now that people are coming there and slowly starting to trickle in and they have this futuristic project on the horizon, they're just so excited to share their home and the natural beauty of their home with other people. I mean, the people that work at the resort, are they also living at the resort because there's nothing else around? I honestly don't know where people who work at the resort live. Uh, There are a lot of people from the Philippines and Indonesia that I noticed were staffing the resort. So I think people have been coming from all over the world to to work there. There are little worker communities scattered throughout the area, almost like construction camps. A lot of people live there. And imagine one single highway cutting through the desert, and it takes like two hours to get from the hotel to anywhere that's, because of the lack of infrastructure right now, anywhere that's a cool site. So we went to a a beautiful like Grand Canyon type thing, uh, a climbing area where this is these slot canyons where you can climb. Um, a seep, a wreckage of a seaplane from like the '60s. Coral reefs, snorkeling, paddleboarding. These beautiful beaches. A lot of historical, like biblical engravings, uh, ruins. A valley that Moses used to live in. All that stuff. It's like you gotta go two hours to get anywhere. So you spend a lot of time in the car, and along the way, you're just going through straight up desert. Uh, you're going off roading over dunes, big red sand dunes. And if you're working on the site, if you're one of those people that kind of picked up, moved your life, came to Neom to work on this site, you're living either at the hotel, I think, or in one of these worker communities that are just in these side construction roads off the desert. And they're their own little worlds unto themselves. I only went there once to get a, uh, a COVID test at the very end. But it's, it's a really interesting dynamic. A lot of the people that work there uh, our, our main liaison was this guy, Joe from the UK, basically picked up his life from the UK, moved to Saudi Arabia to help work on this project to help kind of grow tourism. And that's now what he does. He now lives in the Arabian desert. He used to work in, in skiing and snowboarding. And now he's, you know, building tourism in Saudi Arabia. My driver from the airport is from, I think the Philippines. So everyone has kind of seen the uniqueness uh, and the excitement of this project and picked up, uprooted their life from wherever they lived in the world, came to the Arabian desert and now live and work there. And it's this kind of communal effort that everyone shares in and, and participates in and gets excited about. So it's a pretty cool project. So you compared it to Dubai. When Dubai was built and and still to this day, to my knowledge, there's a lot of criticism of the people that built it basically being forced labor. Did you, is there any of that going on there? Yeah. So basically I'm not aware of any of that. Like I think that the government's doing a pretty good job of treating the workers fairly. I think the workers get paid a decent amount. Uh, I do know that there are some towns in the area that uh, are being 
in areas that are being redeveloped. So they're building, you know, roads or they want to build part of the city through existing communities. And with those people, they're basically offering them like a big stipend, uh, a job working in tourism for Neom in exchange for kind of uprooting them essentially. So I know that a lot of other places in the world, people are simply uprooted and not really given anywhere else to go. It does seem like the government is paying a lot of attention to treating fairly the people that are living are living in these redeveloped areas. So that's good. But it's funny because you're going to a place that they've, they're not used to tourism. You know, they're just a lot of places you visit as a traveler. Tourism has been a staple of their society for decades and it's 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 like one of their primary sources of income and that's not true here not yet they're very hospitable very welcoming of tourists and they're excited to have tourists but you definitely get the sense that they're just they're kind of learning along with you about how to present this area to people in an accessible way and that was one of the most interesting parts of going there because everywhere i've been previously tourism is just such a well-oiled machine and it's it's not here, and that's almost better. You you feel like you're getting a more natural experience. So there's one thing I'm still confused about with this whole neon thing, right? So there's the line, which is the city, and it's going to be built as a city, right, with neighborhoods and jobs and schools and shopping centers and all these things. But then there is neon, the tourist destination. What is the difference, and how much are they going to be in line with each other? Yeah, so Neom is the region, the line is the city, almost like the capital of the region. So the line is going to be this uh, city in the shape of a line. The idea is that there's going to be no cars, it's all going to be sustainable transportation, you're going to be able to walk or bike or take public transport everywhere. Um, and that's the city, and then the surrounding area is Neom, which is the nature, the deserts, the coral reefs, everything else. So that's the distinction. Right now, the biggest city in the region is Tabuk, which is about two hours away from where I was at the Rural Tulip Hotel. And Tabuk is accessible via basically the one highway that goes through the area. Uh, and the funny story, the one I, to show kind of their how new they are to tourism, when I landed, they had arranged for drivers to pick us up. There's no there's no public transport, there's no bus you can do or train you can take from Tabuk to the Neom, you know, to, to the coast. So this guy picks me up at the airport at one in the morning, uh, or at like midnight when my plane landed. So it's totally dark. He's driving me two hours to the Royal Tulip Hotel and we can't really communicate because he doesn't speak English, which is fine. And so we're just kind of sitting there in silence and I'm, I'm telling him like, okay, yeah, I'm going to the Royal Tulip. He's like, yes, 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 Royal Tulip. And we go after two hours, it's now like 2.30 in the morning. We drive past the Royal Tulip. There's again, there's nothing in this desert. So when you see this big sign that says Royal Tulip, you, you notice it, even though it's pitch black. And I'm like, oh, we, we drove right past it. I'm like, oh, that's that that's our hotel, Royal Tulip. That's where I'm supposed to be. He's like, no, 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 no. Neom one, Neom one, Neom Community One. I'm like, I don't know what Neom Community One is, but I think I'm supposed to be at the Royal Tulip. That's where I was told that's where I'm staying. So we drive like another 20 minutes and I'm worried. I'm like, where is this guy taking me? It's pitch black. I can't communicate with him. He says in Neom Community 1, Neom 1, we end up going down this dirt road into one of those worker communities where the construction workers live. And there's a gate, and there, the security there is, like, very strict. And there's a gate agent there, and he's like, where's your ID? And I was like, I, here's my my passport. He's like, no, 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 where's your Neom ID? You need, like, special visitor ID to get into this community. 
And I'm like, I don't, I don't have one. I don't know. I don't even know where I'm supposed to be right now. And this guy's looking at me sternly like, well, you can't come in without an ID. And I'm looking at my driver and he just kind of shrugs his shoulders. He has no idea what's going on. And I'm like, it's three in the morning right now. I'm standing here outside of a gate being told by an agent that I can't get in without an ID. I don't even know if I'm supposed to be at this Neom community one area. I'm in the middle of the desert. I have no idea how to communicate with my driver. Like, what am I supposed to do? So I told the gate agent, Royal Tulip, Royal Tulip Hotel. That's where I think I'm supposed to be. And he's kind, he kind of understands me. He's like, oh, yes, yes, Royal Tulip. Thank God it's the only hotel in the area. So, of course, he knows it. He tells my driver where to take me. And the guy's like, oh, Royal Tulip. Oh, yeah, yes. Okay, I'll bring you there. I'm like, yeah, well, that's, that's what I was saying the whole time, <laughs> Royal Tulip. So then he drives me back 20 minutes. It's now 3.30 in the morning. Thank God that's the right, that is where I'm supposed to go. And... I finally get to sleep at like 4 a.m. But that I mean, it was one of the most nerve-wracking experiences that I've had upon arrival somewhere, not being able to communicate, being in a place that was so remote, just you know, as an American in Saudi Arabia, I didn't have the idea I was, you know, that this guy was asking of me. Thank God, because if I had, he would have let me in. The guy would have dropped me off. I would have been wandering around this worker camp aimlessly, having nowhere to stay. And uh, yeah, so that was, and that was the, the tourism people organizing all this for us. And that, that miscommunication still happened. So it just kind of goes to show if the people who are experts in tourism are organizing this for you, they're still, it's still so new to them that stuff like that can happen and will happen. Looking back on it, a fond memory and kind of a defining aspect of my experience there, just figuring out as you go, not having a well-oiled experience that's seamless. You have to kind of always be on your feet, making adaptations. And that was part of the cool part of the experience. Yeah, man, you're lucky that gate agent spoke English or you might still be there. Uh, so lucky, so lucky. I think about that all the time. <laughs> so let's talk about the actual Saudi experience. Uh, I think people have perceptions of, of, of how Saudi people present themselves uh, publicly, but how how are the Saudi people? How is the dress code? I understand there's not alcohol served there. What is the social setting like there, and how do people present themselves to outsiders? There is a sense of culture shock when I first arrived, being the only person in the airport, <laughs> and then in Tabuk, seemingly not wearing the kind of traditional garb, but. By the second day, I was like, well, I really wanted one myself because it's so comfortable and so light that I totally get why they why they all dress the same because that was intimidating. There was like this uniformity of how everyone looks. You're coming from the U.S. where everyone dresses differently, and I felt like I was an outlier. But by the you know second or third day, I felt like just an idiot, honestly, for wearing heavier clothes where all these people are dressed like that clearly because it's just it breathes better in the, the hot desert heat. So I, I wanted one. So that was a, a, a weird kind of cultural thing to get over for the first few days. But otherwise, they don't obviously drink. Most would pray five times a day. Our guides who are driving us would pull over and they'd stop and they'd set up their mat and they'd pray. And once you get used to that, it becomes part of, again, I was there for two weeks, it becomes part of kind of just everyday life. It's like, all right, well, it's prayer time. We're going to stop for five minutes. They're going to pray. And it's um, not something they impose on anybody it's not something that you feel judged for not doing and i think the 
the way they treat women is the number one question that I always get when I when I came back. It's like, oh, like how how did they treat like the women in your group? Incredibly chivalrously, showed a lot of respect toward women. Would even you know our drivers would stop the car, come around, open the door for the girl in our group. Again, we were in a very specific environment. We were in a tourism environment where they're trying to make a good impression. So. You know, I can't speak to other areas of the country. I think where we were tends to be a little more liberal, but they love shisha. They love smoking shisha. So I think that's that's their advice. They don't do alcohol. They don't do you know weed, but they they smoke cigarettes and shisha all day. <laughs> Every time we'd stop, I'd pull off to go to a location and we'd shoot. They our drivers would set up a mat. They'd pour Arabic coffee and tea. The tea is essentially just pure sugar. So it's just like they're just on sugar highs all day, smoking shisha and chain smoking cigarettes, and that's how they sub the alcohol and weed. <laughs> so that's their thing. But no, there was never any judgment or pressure to conform or there was everyone was very friendly, very accepting, very open, and very willing to talk about their culture. And that was probably the biggest takeaway that I had from the trip. All right, awesome. Thanks for listening to No Black Updates. Make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us, of course, a five-star review. And if for some reason you want to follow what we're up to, I'm EvanFlow underscore on Instagram, and he's TimWinger1. Also, a big shout-out and thanks to our producer, Alex Halkey, executive producer, Katie Hetrick, our email marketing guru, Kelsey Wilking, the Matador social crew, and everyone else on the team who puts up with us on a daily basis. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you.